we've been in a series during Advent uh, called Arrival. And this series has really been looking at the way and the, the ways that God has revealed himself to us as he has come to us. And so we looked the very first week at the idea of longing. And we just sang a song about longing. Uh, this song that, uh, that describes this idea of an anticipation or a desire that we have. We said that everybody, everybody has longings. Everybody has desires. Everybody has wants. And what is true about every longing that you have is that there is nothing on earth that can fully and finally satisfy that longing. Uh, That's why you're always hungry again after you eat, no matter how good the meal is. Uh, That's why, no matter how beautiful a painting is, you still desire to see something beautiful. That's why, no matter how wonderful a romantic encounter might be, uh, you're only more anxious for the next romantic encounter. There is a longing inside of us that points us to something beyond what satisfies it in this life. And the reason God gave us this longing, we said, is because... God wants us to know that we were made for someplace else. We were made for something else. That he intends to satisfy every longing of the human heart himself. That he is the ultimate source of satisfaction. And he revealed himself to us in that first Christmas. We said that he came, that Jesus was born. And we, we looked at that last or two weeks ago as Jesus was born and what that means, that God has sent Jesus to be the fulfillment of every human longing. And then last week we talked about the reality that Jesus still comes, that he comes into the hearts and lives of people in their present reality. And let me just tell you, if you missed last week, Go to the website, download the podcast, watch the live stream. It was a fantastic sermon because I didn't preach it by myself. I had four helpers and they really preached the sermon and you do not want to miss it. So last week we talked about the fact that he comes in our present reality. So this week we want to look at God's arrival in the future tense. The reality that he is coming. That he is coming. Now, To do this, we're going to look at a passage of scripture that you might not expect us to look at. If you read the the Christmas stories, uh, you will find them in the Gospel of Matthew and in the Gospel of Luke. They tell the Christmas story. John also wrote a Gospel, but he didn't tell the Christmas story in the Gospel. He told the Christmas story in a different book that he wrote, in the book of Revelation. And so we're going to look at the way John told the Christmas story in Revelation chapter 12. So if you have a Bible, go ahead and start finding your way there. Now, the minute I say that, a couple things happen. First of all, everybody in the room is like, what in the world is he doing on Christmas? We're supposed to talk about angels and shepherds and, you know, and, and cattle, you know, sheep in the field, watching their flocks by night, all those kind of things. So that's everybody. Then, then it divides into two groups. Half of you are thinking, Revelation, oh no, I don't understand it. It scares me. It makes no sense to me. And I really don't want really to even consider what that might have to say to me. The others of you are so excited that it's a little scary. Like you are like, oh, finally, he's going to preach from Revelation. We're going to get some good stuff now, some good, you know, some good fire and brimstone. All right. So both sides need to you know, settle down just a little bit. Because what this book is about is not often what we're told it's about, uh, I think, in pu- for public consumption. Uh, this book is, uh, is a style of literature that we don't use a lot, we don't read a lot today, but at the time John wrote it, it was a style of literature that was pretty popular. 
And, and, and when you read it, you have to understand that what you're reading, there's a lot of symbolism in it. There's a, there's a lot of, uh, of flowery language in it, descriptive language in it. And it really is dangerous when you read it to, to take certain things uh, exactly for face value what they say. For example, it says, that, it says that the street was like gold. It doesn't say it was gold. And yet, what do all the gospel songs talk about? The streets of gold, right? And so it's one of those ways where John is trying to describe something to us in human language that honestly can't be described in human language. So it, our language is limited. And so Revelation is misunderstood uh, primarily because the language is, is, so, is so limiting. I, I want to use an analogy for you. Any art lovers in the room? How many of you love art? You love art. So we've got a lot of you. So for those of you who love art, you know that in the uh, Impressionist period, there was a style of art called pointillism. And pointillism was this idea where the artist would take the colors from their palette and they would use dots, lots of dots. And they would take the colors and they would mix them by using just different dots of different colors. When you're right up against a, a p- picture that has been painted using that technique, it doesn't make a lot of sense to you. I mean, you just see all these random dots of colors, but you don't necessarily see the picture. In order to see and understand the picture, you have to step back from it. And the further back you get, your eye takes all those dots of colors and it begins to mold them together and you see a picture. The book of Revelation is a lot like that. And Revelation chapter 12 is in particular uh, like that. And so as we look at this today, I want to read it for you first. And then we're going to kind of take it apart and talk about what this means as it relates to the anticipation that not only did Jesus come in the past, and not only does he come to us in our present, but the great hope that he is coming to us. So Revelation chapter 12, I'll read the whole chapter, and then we'll try to take it apart. Revelation chapter 12, beginning in verse 1. This is John's Christmas story. Now, some of you are going to run out and try to find an ornament with a dragon with seven heads because your whole idea of Christmas is about to change right now. Revelation chapter 12, verse 1. And a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of 12 stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his head seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars from heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days. Now war arose in heaven. Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon. And the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world, he was thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down who accuses them day and night 
before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. For they loved not their lives even unto death. Therefore, rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath because he knows that his time is short. And when the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. But the woman was given to the wings of the great eagle so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness to the place where she is to be nourished for a time and times and a half time. And the serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away with a flood. But the earth came to the help of the woman and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed the river that the dragon had poured from his mouth. Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who kept the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And he stood on the sand of the sea. This is the word of the Lord. And a Merry Christmas to all and to all a good night. (laughs) You are thinking he has lost his mind. All right, let's take this apart. And then we'll try to put it all back together and see what it means. Because I think it's got a really important message. And I'm, I'm kind of disappointed that I've lived my whole life and never heard this message as a Christmas message. Because I think it's got something really important to say to the church today. First of all, what does this mean? Who, who is who in this story? Let's take it apart that way first. The dragon is Satan. That's pretty clear because John says that's who the dragon is, so we don't have to guess at who he's talking about. Now, if you are somebody um, like many of us today who think, well, you know, don't we live in an age of reason? And and aren't we a little past the idea of Satan and devils with horns with pitchforks and running around? I mean, isn't that just kind of... Isn't that just kind of a myth and a fable? Why do we even want to talk about that? C.S. Lewis said something interesting about the devil. He said the devil is happy with two misunderstandings about him. One, people who choose not to believe him at all and discount him entirely. Or two, people who give him way too much attention and worry about him all the time. And Satan is happy if you make either mistake. The reality is you don't have to live very long in this world to realize there are evil forces at work. There is real evil in our world. And there is something behind that evil. You have felt it in yourself. Because there have been times in your own life where you have made a choice and you've looked back and you said, I don't know what came over me. You even use that kind of vocabulary, don't you? And then, of course, you know, the answer is, well, the devil made me do it, right? That's, that's the, the typical answer. But there is a force of evil at work. However you want to envision that, however you want to see that, we cannot deny the fact that there is evil at work in the world. I do not believe it is represented by a little red man with a cape and a pitchfork and horns. Actually, I think it's much more seductive than that. It's much prettier than that. It's much more attractive than that. It's much more appealing than that. When you have fallen into temptation, when you have fallen into evil, it's been because you've been attracted by it, not because you were repulsed by it. Let's admit it. If he ran around with horns and a pitchfork, we'd recognize him, right? But that's not how it works. So the dragon is Satan. He is called the accuser, and he appears throughout the Bible. Now, Satan is one of God's creation. Satan is not apart from God's creation. He is, he is under the authority and the sovereignty of God. And you think, well, why would God do that? It goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden 
when there was a tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Why was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in the garden? We've talked about this many times. It was because if we didn't have a choice not to obey and not to love God, then we could never say that we actually chose to love God. If you don't have a choice to love him, you can't say that you truly do love him. And so Satan's role throughout the Bible as the accuser, as the tempter, always sets us up with a choice. Will you believe? Will you obey? Will you love? Or will you turn your back on God? So Satan is the accuser. The woman in the story um, obviously could represent Mary. If you were familiar with the Christmas story, Mary gave birth uh, to Jesus, and we can read about that. But more than that, Mary represents, or the woman represents the faithful people of God. Israel in the Old Testament, the church in the New Testament, that it was from the nation of Israel, it was from the people of Israel that Jesus came forth, that the Messiah came forth. So this woman represents more than just Mary in the nativity story. This woman also represents the faithful people of God. And then finally, the third character that we need to understand is the male child. And the male child is clearly referring to to Jesus. This was Jesus that John is talking about. And John is giving you the heavenly perspective of what was going on with the birth of Jesus. So what exactly was happening? Well, first of all, Jesus, as we know, was born of a woman. The Christmas story. This woman was giving birth to a child, and she was in great labor and in great pain. We read in Galatians chapter 4, uh, verse 4, uh, the Apostle Paul says this, But in the fullness of time, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law. In other words, Jesus came and was born in real time, in real history, in a real context. The story of Jesus' birth is important. The context in which Jesus was born was important. And this idea that she was in labor, this is the first advent as the nation of Israel long awaited the coming of the Savior. They long awaited the anticipation of the Messiah. This longing that was deep inside of them. Abraham had longed for it. Moses had longed for it. The prophets had longed for it. Isaiah prophesied about it. And they had waited for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. And out of great pain and out of great trial, Jesus was brought forth. Now, you see in the story then that Satan, the dragon, enters the story. He's threatened by the birth of Jesus and tries to destroy this male child that was born, tried to devour the child. And of course, if you know the Christmas story, then you're familiar with Matthew chapter 2, the story of King Herod. That Herod was, uh, was very upset at the rumors that a king was being born who might challenge his authority. And you remember the story of the wise men, that the wise men were coming, they had followed the star and they were looking for the child. And they had gone to Herod and to find out where this child was to be born. And Herod went back to all the religious leaders and, and the, the prophecies were told about how the child was going to be born in Bethlehem. And so Herod told the wise men about this and said, hey, go to Bethlehem, find this child and then come back and tell me where you find him so that I can also come and worship him. But you remember what happened? The, the wise men show up at the, at the house where Jesus is. They present their gifts, and then they have a dream. And in the dream, the angel says, don't go back to Herod, because Herod is going to try to kill this child. And so they went back another way. So you see, from the birth, there was evil at work to try to destroy Jesus. That's for some reason, this uh, this power, this power of Satan, this accuser was threatened by the birth of this, of this child. But it didn't stop just at his birth. If you continue to read the story of Jesus, you see the opposition, the religious leader's opposition, the political leader's opposition, until it comes to a culmination in the story of the crucifixion. 
that Jesus was actually arrested and put on trial uh, as the religious leaders and the political leaders colluded together, brought false charges, and ultimately they convicted him and they crucified him. But then John tells us in the very next breath in Revelation chapter 12 that this Jesus, this child, overcame and returned to heaven. And so you see the story about Jesus' resurrection and his ascension back to heaven. So this child who came, this Messiah who came, was born. There were the evil, all the evil forces of the world were opposed to this child. This child grew to be a man, died on the cross. It looks as if the dragon has won, only to find three days later that Jesus rises from the dead and returns back to heaven. And then it says in this passage for that we read from John chapter 12 that this woman is left in the desert and she's running for her life. You think, well, what, what is that about? Well, as you read on through the rest of the book of Revelation, you come to understand that John is talking about the church, the people, the faithful people of God who have been left behind on earth. That in other words, after Jesus' ascension into heaven, the apostles from the time of the apostles all the way to the day that you and I are sitting here today, we are part of that faithful body of believers who have been left on earth. And we face trials, don't we? Anybody in here not face a challenge this week? Anybody? Anybody in here? Okay, all of us. We're all in the same boat. That we face these, these trials. Some of them are more serious. Some of them are of our own making. Others of them are less serious or maybe they come from outside sources. But we face these trials. This place, this desert is always a place of testing, a, a place of trial. And then you see in Revelation 12 that this war breaks out. Anybody remember where it said it broke out? Yeah, it's, he says it like six times in the, in the chapter. He broke out in heaven. So a war was breaking out in heaven. What was happening here? So from the heavenly perspective, God's plan of salvation takes form. He sends Jesus. God himself takes on flesh, comes and is born. All of the powers of Satan, all the powers of hell, all the powers of evil are threatened by the birth of this child. And through the course of this child's life, they're threatened and they try to squelch this child's life. Ultimately, it looks as if evil itself has won the victory as Jesus is crucified Only three days later, God turns the table and raises him from the dead. He ascends to heaven, and then it says this war breaks out in heaven. Now, this comes to something, if you have been in church for a long time, or maybe maybe you've not been in church for a long time, but you've always heard this story about about the primordial fall of Satan. That That you've heard somewhere back before the creation that Satan... There was a war in heaven and Satan fell down, you know, was cast out. He's the most beautiful angel. I've even heard that he was the minister of music in in heaven. I I was a minister of music for 15 years. I always was offended by that. Now I'm a preacher and I think it's funny. (laughs) So this idea that, that he was the most beautiful angel, something happened and he was cast down out of heaven. Here's where, if you go and try to find that story in your Bible... You won't find it. Minds blowing up everywhere. You won't find it because it's not in there. Because that story doesn't come from the Bible. That story comes from Dante's Inferno. The story of the fall of Satan is actually found in Revelation chapter 12. And the fall of Satan came about not before the creation of the world, but the fall of Satan came about because Jesus won the victory on the cross And when he went to heaven, 
all the, all the victory had been won. Satan had been fully and finally defeated on the cross. Now, I'm going to talk about why this is so important in just a minute. And some of you aren't going to listen to anything else I say because you're looking in your concordance and you're Googling it right now to try to find all the verses. That's okay. That's all right. I understand this is, this is, this is a, a game changer. But let me just give you a couple examples why I believe the Bible is consistent about this and when Satan fell from heaven. If you go back and you read the book of Job, Job chapter 1, chapter 2, Job is this righteous man, the most righteous man the, the, that the world had ever known. And, and God is having this heavenly staff meeting. And in this staff meeting, he's evaluating all that's going on on the earth. And guess who's in the staff meeting in heaven? The devil, the accuser, the tempter. Remember, he plays an important role. God has a purpose for him. He's using him for his own ends. So he says, to, God says, to Satan, well, have you considered my servant Job? And now if you're Job, you don't want God bringing your name up in front of Satan. That's just not the kind of conversation you want. And Satan says to God, well, you know what? If you take all his blessings away from him, he'd curse you. The only reason that Job is so righteous and so holy is because you've blessed him so much. Let me go down there and let me test him. Let me tempt him. Let me accuse him. Let me take everything away from him. And then we'll see what happens. And you know the rest of the story, of course. He goes down. But where was Satan? He was in the heavenly council talking to God. I'll give you another example. New Testament. Peter is shortly before the crucifixion. And Jesus says to Peter, Peter, Satan is asking to sift you. What's going on? That Satan is doing the same thing to Peter that he did to Job in the Old Testament. And of course you know the story about Peter's denying Jesus and all the trials and all the difficulties that that Peter went through. And just like Job, Peter was found faithful. But Satan's role in that was to tempt and to test Peter's faith. Peter's faithfulness. This is the role that Satan plays. This is the role that he played in the Old, Old Testament. This is the role he played in the New Testament. And then after the crucifixion... The battle is over. Because in the death and resurrection of Jesus, God has won the final victory. And Satan is cast out of heaven. No longer does he have any power or authority. He is cast down. See, the resurrection of Jesus is the death blow and the cause of the fall of Satan. All victory is won through the power of the resurrection. It is the central point of all human history. It is the central point of theology. It is the central point of the Bible. As important as the birth of Jesus is, it is much more important to understand that he rose from the dead to overcome sin, death, and the grave than it is to understand the story of Bethlehem. Because it is the central piece of all human history. So then, Satan is confined where? Does anybody remember? Where is he confined from Revelation 12? He's cast out of heaven and he's confined where? He's confined to the earth, which explains why we're having such a hard time, right? It explains why evil runs rampant. And it explains why sometimes we think, well, God, what's going on? Why is this this allowed to persist? Why is this allowed to continue? He's confined to the earth and makes war against the church. This is where we live today. And the church, the faithful men and women of God, endure while awaiting the return of Jesus which will ultimately result in the final defeat of Satan, the final defeat of sin, the final defeat of death and the grave and all sickness and dying, and he himself will come and wipe every tear from our eye. If you want to read about that final victory, you can read Revelation chapter 20. 
And you can see how ultimately, as Jesus comes back, the victory is finally won. And there is no more sickness and death and suffering. And all the consequences of evil are removed. And we're able to be in God's presence without the influence of brokenness and sin that comes about in our world. This is where we live, church. Listen to what the Apostle Peter said to those of us who are here. He said this. Be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. And you know who lions go after? The stragglers. They go after the ones who by themselves. And that's what Peter's saying. He said, hey, watch out. You have a real enemy who's seeking to devour you, who's looking for every opportunity to bring you down, and you need to be alert and of sober mind and be aware of it. Listen to what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 10, 13. No temptation, no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. You see, every temptation, every trial, every disappointment, every discouragement, every wound is an opportunity for you to grow deeper in your faith and deeper in your trust. As you see God prove himself faithful, that he has not left you alone. He did come in the form of a savior. He does come to us in the very real presence of our challenges and our struggles here and now where we live. But church, we recognize and know that there are things about this life that we can't explain. That if God is so good and God is so loving, then how do you explain cancer? How, how, do, you explain, how do you explain abuse? How, how do you explain the evil that leads to human trafficking? How, how do you explain all of these things that are going on? It's because we live in a world that has been infected by evil. But God, by his grace, has made a way for us. He has left his church here on purpose. He left us here, the faithful of God. He left us here so that we might be the vanguard of his invasion back into earth. That the church is the outpost in enemy territory where God continues to do his work. Where he continues through you as you pray for people. Through you as you give and we support missionaries in other parts of the world. Through you as we go into parts of our city and community and minister to the least of these. That God is doing his work through the church. The reason he left her here is so that we who are the church can continue to carry on the work of Jesus until he returns. That's what we've been called to do. And so we shouldn't be surprised when things are hard. And we shouldn't be surprised when there's sickness and when there's death and when there's suffering. We shouldn't be surprised by those things. It doesn't mean we can't grieve. We do grieve. We grieve, though, as people with hope. Because we recognize that the battle has already been won through the birth, life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's the Christmas story in its entirety. That's the gift that God gave us in Jesus. John reported a conversation that Jesus had with his, apostles, his disciples shortly before his crucifixion. He was trying to explain to them about this, which, come on, it's hard, right? I mean, this is not easy to think about. But he's trying to tell them, okay, guys, I'm, I'm going I'm to be arrested and I'm going to be crucified. And they're like, whoa, 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 whoa. No, 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 no. You're going you're gonna to go and take over and kick out the Romans. Like, that's what you're going to do, Jesus, because we know better than you how God, how, what God's plan should be. Like, this is what you're going to do. She's like, nope, 
That's not how it's going to work. And so he's trying to explain to them what's going to happen. And he says this in John 14. It's a familiar passage. I'm sure you've heard it before, maybe even at a funeral. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. He said, I came, I come But I will come again. And it's going to be hard in between. But your job is to remain faithful, to remain diligent, and to wait. This story really uses the practices of the the weddings during Jesus' day. That that in those days when a young man would be engaged to a young woman, uh, they would be committed to be married. And uh, there was just a period of time while they waited for that wedding to take place, that the young man had to go back to his father's house where his job was to add a room onto the house because that families all lived together then. And so the, the, the bridegroom had to go back and had to build this addition onto the house. And when that room was done, then the father, his father would look at it and say, okay, son, it's ready. You can go get your bride. And then that bridegroom would leave And he'd go through the streets and everybody in the town would start to follow him because they'd all know what was going to happen. And it was a spontaneous wedding. You couldn't even plan for it. So guess what the bride had to do? She had to be ready. Like she had to be ready because she never knew when he was coming. And whenever his father said, okay, son, the wedding chamber's ready. Go get her. Do you think that he wasted any time? I don't think he wasted any time. The minute he was told to go get his bride, he left and went to get her. And as, they're, as he's walking through the streets, the anticipation is building. And the bride had to be ready. And all the waiting and all the longing and all the anticipation was to build up for that moment when she would see her groom come to take her to be back with him forever as his wife. And when the father says the room is ready, when the father tells the son... Go get your bride. Jesus will return. Listen to what he said in Matthew 24, 36. But concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. This is the second advent. You're living in it, church. We talk, we light these candles, it's awesome. We talk about the prophecies and how Jesus came and fulfilled all those prophecies. But don't miss what the Bible is telling you. That you are living in a period of waiting and longing and anticipation right here, right now, today. Your condition is not how it will be. Amen? You can live in the hope and anticipation that this is not all there is. Evil does not have the final say. Abuse, rejection, betrayal, death is temporary. The battle has already been won. And we are simply waiting on the victor to return and claim his prize. When we talk about Christmas... When we celebrate the birth of Jesus, we are missing something so critically important if we don't spend equal time longing for his return as much as we celebrate the fact that he did come. And why is this important? Let me share three big ideas with you about why this is so important. 
First of all, Jesus came and the victory has already been won. It's over. Satan's been defeated. This is why the apostles and all the people that you read about in the New Testament, the people that John described, that, that they, they could endure suffering, they could endure hardship, they could endure loss, they could endure betrayal because they knew that the victory had already been won. This is a temporary situation. Paul said, these light and momentary afflictions do not compare with the glories that are in store for me. So bring it on. Bring it on. What can the world do to me when the victory has already been won? And so I lost my spouse way earlier than anybody should lose a spouse. That's okay. If that spouse is with Jesus, I know where he is. I know where she is. And one day, there will be a great reunion. And so, so I had to bury a child. That's terrible. That's awful. That is real grief and real pain. But that's not how God intended it to be. Evil may have won that battle, but it does not win the final victory. And so you get a diagnosis of cancer. Or somebody you love has a diagnosis of cancer. Cancer doesn't have the final victory. And so somebody abandoned you, neglected you, abused you. These momentary and light afflictions do not compare because we know that right now, Jesus came, the victory's already happened. The war's already been waged. And Jesus wins. And because we know this, we can have peace. Do you see the connection? That my peace doesn't depend on my circumstances. That any circumstance can come. Any challenge can come my way. And it may be hard and I may grieve and I may not like it. But I can have peace. Because I know the victory has already been won. Because Jesus came. That's what he came to do. And he finished it. The second thing I think we need to know about this is that we have not been left alone. Jesus told his disciples, it's good for you that I go away so that the Holy Spirit can come and be with you and teach you everything. I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but when God took on flesh and came and dwelt among us, when when he became incarnate in Jesus Christ, he limited himself to one specific time and one specific geographic location. You think, well, thanks, Captain Obvious, we get that, right? But, But think about this for a second. There's an infinite, there, there, there's a finite number of people who saw Jesus. There's a finite number of people who heard Jesus talk. Now, through the recording of his word and through the testimony of the church, we've told those stories over and over again. But there were only about 500 people, Paul says, who saw the resurrected Jesus. Physically saw him. Jesus said, but get ready. Because, because I'm going back to the Father, the Holy Spirit's going to come. And now the incarnation isn't just going to be manifest in one person at one time in one place, but the Holy Spirit is going to come and take up residence in every single believer. Not God with you, God in you. This is that Christmas that we talked about last week. When Christ comes and dwells inside of us, that we have not been left alone. God is not surprised by your circumstances he knows that you are battling depression right now he knows that you don't know how you're going to make the payments at the end of this month that you have to make he knows he knows that you feel like a total fraud at work he knows everything about you the writer of Hebrews says we have a savior who is familiar with all our sufferings, with all our temptations, with all our trials. He has not left you alone in your current circumstance. 
And because he has not left us alone, we can have hope. We don't have to be hopeless. We can have the hope that comes from knowing that God is with us. And he will continue to be with us as we face these trials. And finally, we live with the eager expectation that Jesus is coming. And I don't think we talk about this in church nearly enough. And you know why we don't? Come on, you know why we don't. Because we like this place pretty much. Right? We're pretty comfortable. I mean, we got the internet. Just binge watch Netflix till you go numb. And you don't have to see and realize the circumstances that your world is in. Because you just dial up a different reality on the internet. And that's where you live. And what do we do? We satisfy ourselves. We medicate those longings that we talked about. We medicate those longings. We medicate them with all kinds of things. Pleasure, comfort, satisfaction. Take another vacation. That's what retirement's about, right? So you can save all your money and spend it on yourself. The goal is to make sure there's nothing left. And we medicate ourselves and we miss the fact that this world is not your home. If you have settled for this place, you are denying yourself the eternal pleasures that God has for you. That this world pales in comparison to what it is that God has for you. You know where they do talk about stuff like this? They do talk about the second coming and the Christians in the Middle East talk about the second coming. When they live under threat of persecution and death every day, where they fear every time they get together to worship, where they sing in hushed tones in the church in China because they don't want somebody to hear them because they fear that somebody might come and might arrest them or worse. In those places, they get through every day because they live with the expectation and hope that Jesus is coming. And we don't want to talk about it because to be truthful, we're quite happy where we are. We may not even come to church next week because it's not convenient. Come on. I'll give, but I'll give some of my extra. Because your hope and everything that you have is found right here in this place. And you haven't uprooted it and placed it where God has called you to place it in the future, in his kingdom, in the reality that it is coming. And when it comes It will crush everything else, and all that will remain will be what he brings with him in his kingdom. That's why Jesus said, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Don't store up your treasure here. Store it up there. We live with the eager anticipation that Jesus is coming, that there will be no more sickness, no more death, no more grief. The old order of things will pass away. Behold, Jesus says, I am making all things new. And I say, me, Lord. Start with me. Us, Lord, start with our church right here. Start with us. We're ready. We're going to stay faithful. We're going to do what you called us to do until you come back. But, Lord, when you come back, we want to be right there. Come on, because life's hard, right? And this is hard. It's a challenge to get through every day. It's a challenge to get through every week and live with this kind of hope. And you look different than the rest of the world, or you should. And if you don't, my question is, why not? We live with the eager expectation of that Jesus is coming. We can have joy. Even in the midst of awful circumstances. Listen, God gave you longings. He gave you desires. My prayer for you is that you'll figure out why. 
And my prayer for you is that you're going to come to the end of all the things in this world that you're using to medicate and satisfy them that brings temporary satisfaction. Alcohol, drugs, sex, internet, work, whatever it is, that you'll come to the realization before it's too late that those things do not satisfy the deepest longing of your heart, that you will recognize that God has sent Jesus to be the ultimate fulfillment of everything, that he comes to you in your present condition, and that he is coming back, and we can live with eager hope and expectation of that reality. And until then, that you will be found faithful, day in and day out, with every breath that God has given you, to be his church in this world, to be salt and to be light, to make a difference until he comes. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you for the hope and the promise of Christmas. The Christmas that we celebrate in history, but Father, for the Christmases that are happening in the hearts and lives of people on a moment-by-moment basis as you are making things new, even beginning now. But Lord, we know that we live in a world that is broken and fallen. Father, there's so much that we can read about online, that we can see on the news and here on the radio and say there's just there's still something so wrong with this world in which we live but father help us not to dwell there too long before we think about the promise of your return that you will come and make all things new and lord as we go through the very few days that are left of advent lord i just pray that we would turn our attention to our current reality that we are living in the second advent now. And Father, that we would allow the thought of your return to fill us with peace, to bring us hope, and to give us joy. Lord, we pray that you will do all these things and that you will reveal yourself to us today, right here, right now. And for anyone who who has never put their confidence and trust in you, Lord, Perhaps today would be a day that they would say, I want to be a part of that story. Father, I pray you'd give them the faith. And that if they'd step step towards you in faith, that today might be their own Christmas. As you come and take up residence inside their heart. For we pray it in the precious name of Jesus. Amen.